turn our attention now to the word. Let me pray for us. Ask God to, to bless our time. We are grateful, Father, that, that you have spoken and that we're not here to listen to me or anyone else for that matter, but to, but to hear from you, to hear your message to us that you are with us, that you're at work in our lives. Um, and beyond the, the stuff of our days and through the stuff of our days, something incredible is happening that you are building something, you are assembling something for your glory. And this is part of your kingdom. This is your church, your temple, your people. And we get to be a part of that. And I pray this morning that you would um, challenge us, wake us up, encourage us, encourage us, um, give us exactly what we need, um, depending on the moment and circumstance that we each find ourselves in this morning through your word in this time. Thank you, Father, that you will join us, that you have and promised to meet us and to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Haggai, to the book of Haggai, two-chapter book, three books before Matthew. So if you go to Matthew and you go back three books, you'll find your way to Haggai. Never has my Bible automatically opened to Haggai, but it has over the last three weeks. Uh, always have troubles trying to find those two pages in there and going back and forth and realizing and wondering, is this really in here? Well, it is. And I do have a marker, but uh, now it's there. We're going to continue looking at this. I'm going to finish out at least my, my part this morning for as much as I can with, with this book. As you find it, a little, little bit of backdrop for those of you perhaps or haven't been, been here the last week or two. This book is written to Israel after the exile. 70 years in Babylon and the return, a number of them, the remnant returned to Jerusalem to reestablish um, Israel there, to reestablish the, the worship and the temple, and to begin kind of reconstituting the, their, uh, their nation back in, um, in Jerusalem. And so they've returned and they've began the process of, of rebuilding their homes and their lives and the infrastructure, but they had neglected to rebuild the temple, which was the primary reason they were going back. And so the word comes from Haggai to challenge them to kind of be this kind of wake-up call for them to go, hey, guys, get with it to realize what's going on. And the first part of the book is directed at getting their attention away from the things of their own lives to direct them towards the things that are most important, that is the very presence of God in their midst that have been neglected. And in the last half, the second chapter, is encouragement in the building process of the temple and we're going to read this morning verses 1 through 9 and then verses 20 through 23, primarily just because we, for time purposes, that's the, the passages we're going to be focused on this morning. So 20, verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and then 20 through 23 this morning. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who, is saw, who, who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, O you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures 
of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now jump to verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Last week when we looked at this, there's a couple words of encouragement from this passage. The second word comes in chapter 2. As they begin the work of building the temple and they become discouraged as they've compared what they're doing with what God did the first temple and the glory of that, they become discouraged and demoralized. And so God comes to them. He sends Haggai to encourage him to say, hey, you need to keep working here. And there's two messages. He says, I want you to hear the truth that I'm with you. He promises that his presence is with them. And the second thing he reminds them, he wants them to get a hold of and grasp is that their strength is tied to inseparably his presence among them. And so they are to be strong because he is with them. And so as they get that, they are to be encouraged. But I left you last week with this message, with a question, what is it they need to see? And God wants to raise their eyes from the immediate circumstances that they're in and trying to build a temple, this seemingly impossible task to see what it is that he's doing in and through them and even beyond them. And he wants them to see something that their eyes would not see. And that's the question we're going to look at this morning as they're in the middle of this task of building the temple of what God is doing. Some of you might be familiar with Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, missionaries uh, in the mid-50s, and Elizabeth Elliot was a Bible teacher and those kinds of things. Anyway, a book called Shadow of the Almighty that, that she wrote, which is uh, really the kind of the uh, testament to Jim and his life, and it takes from his journals and those kinds of things. Well, Elizabeth, as they were... Um, they were missionaries in Ecuador to the Aka Indians, uh, writes about that. In this period of time, Jim and uh, four other of his companions are out trying to, to make contact with a group of these, uh, this tr- the tribe, the Akas, making contact. And she ends her book with these words. I'm going to read just a, a quote from it. She ends, the, the final chapter of the book is entitled, Mission Accomplished. And this is the conclusion to this story. We're going down now. Pistols, gifts, novelties in our pockets, prayer in our hearts. All for now, your love, your lover, Jim. As far as I know, these were the last words Jim wrote. He had yet four days to live. All that we know of those four, four days is told elsewhere, and that's in the gates of, through Gates of Splendor, another book. Suffice it to say that on Friday, the thrill of Jim's lifetime was given. He took an aka by the hand And at last the twain met, five American men and three naked savages. Two days later, on Sunday, January 8, 1956, the men for whom Jim Elliott had prayed for six years killed him and his four companions. That's the end of the story. It's the end of the book. And yet if you know the story as it continues, 
Even though such a tragedy there, these men being killed, that Elizabeth and others stuck around afterwards and continued to do ministry in and through and amidst this tribe. In the midst of her husband being killed, she continued to to maintain the work and and saw some incredible things happen. You see, what, what looked like failure to anyone else, to the eyes of those who'd been sent, to the eyes of those who were there saw something different. They saw on the built on the foundation of God's sovereignty and on the lives of these men that there was something else being built. Not just death, but there was something else to be done. And so they continued to stay and to work. That these men who had given their lives for something, their hearts were bigger than themselves and their eyes could see something that was beyond them. Interesting part of the story, right? They had pistols. They had guns to defend themselves. These men did not defend themselves. They died willingly. How is it then that we live like this? How is it we see like this? In hindsight, it's a beautiful story, and you can trace it, and you see this whole tribe comes to understand the gospel. And even decades later, there are those, even from the tribe, coming to America with the message, the testimony of God's transformation in and through their lives. But at that point in time, what did it look like? What would it have looked like to have your husband killed? How could you have seen through that circumstance, through that tragedy, to see something else that God was building? So the question for us is, how can we see through the circumstances that are immediately in front front of us to begin to see and to grasp what it is that God is doing, perhaps even beyond those? As God had showed up here to these people, this Israel is rebuilding, and he's literally brought a kind of revival and a restoration there's great discouragement, and he wants to raise their eyes beyond their circumstances to see something else. He wants them to see how their work, their faithful, obedient work in building the temple, literally putting stone upon stone and timber built upon timber to build something here, is connected to his cosmic transcendent purposes of all time. How is it that he connects, and what do they need to see in relation to their connection of their work to what God was doing? How is it if they were to continue to task, to continue their task, or we were to continue ours without being crushed by it, can we keep going? We need to see something beyond what's right in front of us, in front of us. And that's what God wants to show them, to give them a taste, though they don't see it completely. They want to see, He wants them to see something beyond this. Quickly, a little background. I've mentioned this already a little bit, but for us to understand this a little more fully, they had been in this place in Jerusalem, returned after being in exile for about 17 years now. They've been there, began to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundation, started the altar, and then they stopped. The work was abandoned as they began to focus on their own houses. Haggai comes with a message. They wake up. They begin the process of rebuilding. The task is way too large. For them, And so they're, they're, they're crushed, and God says, no, keep going. They realize the task is, is large for them, but the point of the temple is a representation. It's not just about a building. It's about a presence of God in among them. And so the condition of the temple rep- reflected the condition of them spiritually. And so the importance there is it was in ruins, and their own houses were, were well put together that they needed to do something. Not about their houses, but about the temple. And so they get to work, and the And this is the the process. This is where they are at this point in time. As we look at these two passages, they're meant to encourage them. They're meant to continue to spur them on to fulfill this work of building the temple. And God encourages them by raising their eyes and connecting their faithfulness, their obedience to him with God's redemptive plan to see somehow how their work is connected with what he's doing. 
Because there is a connection. It's not for naught, and it's not just about physical labor. It's about something more being taking place in and amongst them. But as we look at this, it's important also to kind of connect the dots throughout the Old Testament. If you've been around grace for a while, or if you haven't, it's important to know that there's a, a progression throughout the Old Testament where God slowly and through clear pictures and images and themes reveals what his plan is of salvation. He gives us pictures and these themes and lines throughout the Old Testament that eventually will be fulfilled and completed as Christ steps into time and space. And so as Christ shows up, we understand the Old Testament more fully and we understand him more fully as we understand the Old Testament. And so in this passage, these passages we're looking at are some of these themes that he is continuing to unpack for us in time and space and history. God wants them to see, he wants us to see that this is a part of his plan all along. And the two themes that are important for us to get our hands around from the Old Testament to New Testament is the theme of the temple, the building of the temple, and how it's fulfilled and completed in Christ, and the theme of God's chosen servant. As it's seen in the Old Testament, it's traced from the Old Testament into the New, where Christ is that. And Christ is the fulfillment and completion of both of those. And so anytime you read... Old Testament with this kind of language and these prophetic messages looking forward, there's two layers that you need to see it with through two lenses. One is kind of a local immediate one where God says, I want you to build a temple. He wants him to build a temple. Even though he's going to do something more with the temple, it's, it's about a physical reality that he wants them to bring about. And so there's something locally that he's doing in the building of the temple. And so that and in his messenger here, this case, it's Zerubbabel. There's something real. So on this horizon, immediately, there's something that he wants to take place and he's going to use. But then there's also this transcendent horizon. There's one that's beyond just the physical, beyond just the immediate. There's something that he's doing in all time and space through the picture of the temple, through the picture of this servant that God has chosen, that he wants them to connect. And as we connect the dots, we begin to see what God is doing. So the theme of the temple here communicates God's presence. And of course, if we follow our way to the New Testament, we see that Christ was God's presence among us, completed. We see the theme of God's messenger here with Zerubbabel being the one who God chose. We see that Christ is the fulfillment and the completion. And so there's a whole line of God's servants you can find, a whole line of people who were chosen by God and specifically put in a certain place to carry his promise and to reinstill God's people with his promise to them in in building his kingdom. You can look at Moses and Abraham. You can look at David. You can look at uh, Solomon. You can look, and we find ourselves here with Zerubbabel, one of those in that same line. So as we begin to see, to get our handles around, hands around these pictures, this is what we're looking at, the temple and Zerubbabel, God's messenger, God's representative there. Real quick, I want to I place us in time here. Uh, Haggai gives us specific dates that's helpful if I can give you the reference points. He's, he comes the very beginning in August, the end of August by our calendar, 520. About three weeks later, they begin the building of the temple, somewhere in the middle of September, end of September. The second message comes in chapter 2, verse 1, to encourage them. They started the temple. It's during the Feast of Tabernacles and around the 17th of October, the same year, 520 B.C. They're building and they're discouraged, and God t- comes and says, keep going, keep working. 
And now these messages at the end of chapter 2, there's two of them that come, verse 10 and then verse 20, one to the priests and the people, and the second one comes to Zerubbabel, as well as in the kind of most likely in the hearing of all the people. And this is around December 18th, okay? So if you think about it on the calendar, they've been working for about three months now on the, on the temple, and they come, there's probably some sort of event that's to, to mark the, some sort of point or process in the temple itself. And so they're gathered together. The message comes again through Haggai. The first message we're not going to cover today in verse 10, but it's a message to the people about the holiness of God and a reminder of holiness and the blessing that's going to come through their faithfulness. And then the, the second message comes to Zerubbabel, but not just to him, but to everyone. And so that, that just to kind of give us an idea of where we are in terms of the the time and the space. There's another thing I want to touch on before we jump into the two images we have. First of all, this picture here in both passages, in verse 6 and in verse 21, is an image of shaking that's going on. That God's going to do something when he shows up. He's going to shake the heavens and the earth. In verse 6 it says, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations. So God says, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And in verse 21, the same thing. He says uh, to Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. And so the question we're going to ask is, what does it mean that God, when he shows up, he's going to shake? What's taking place here? And of course, we know that God, when he shows up, the shaking is to reveal something. It's to bring about something. In the first case, the, the image of heavens and earth, the shaking of the heavens and earth, it, it's really a picture for us of everything. That the whole universe, that everything from the heavens to the earth, everything in between will be shaken. It will, be not, it will not be untouched when this takes place. So everything will be affected when God shows up, when he shakes. And we'll talk about exactly what's taking place. In chapter, in verse 21, we see the shaking takes place, heavens and earth. And the, the result is an overthrowing in verse 22, overthrowing of thrones and kingdoms, a destroying of strength of kingdoms and nations and overthrowing of chariots. So, so when God shows up, begins to shake, emblems of power are going to be overthrown. Things that look like they're strong will be shown that they're really not. They're going to be overthrown. They're going to be destroyed and replaced by another power, the, the true power that's behind and lies behind them. So the shaking is a kind of powerful act when God shows up. He takes place. It's not just a physical phenomenon as if the earth would shake, although it might when God shows up. It's even beyond that you see the shaking of political kingdoms, military might, ideas, anything that would oppose the kingdom of God will be shaken and will be affected by that. When God shows up, simply put, creation responds. Things begin to be made right. Things that aren't the way that they should be begin to be thrown off and changed to be brought back into line with what God would want. And there's a commotion that comes as a result of this. And so this overthrow, this kind of shaking, we can see in kind of individual ways throughout history. You can go through history and you find certain kingdoms would be established and they look unbeatable. And yet God would say, sorry, and in your time comes, you'll be shaken and you'll be found wanting. And we'll see Babylon falls, Persia falls, Rome falls. Indeed, any nation, any military might that would stand in opposition to God will fall. As God shakes them, they're revealed what they truly are. Any idea, any person that thinks that they stand, all God has to do is show up, shake the world around them, and we find, indeed, who's in charge. And that one will find themselves on their knees before him. The shaking is 
decisively and preliminarily seen in Christ's first coming. When Christ shows up as God's messenger, as God's king, what happens is everything is overturned through his life, death, and resurrection. So everything is turned upside down. As he comes to bring his rule and establish his kingdom, he destroys all powers, especially the evil powers that stand against us. So he destroys the power that opposed him. But the shaking effects will be ultimately seen when he returns again. It's real and his kingdom is established and these powers have been overturned, but our eyes don't see it. Second return he comes, everything will be made right at that point in time and everything will be fully realized. In reference to this, the author of Hebrews, as he talks about the shaking going on, He reminds his readers and he encourages them. He says, the shaking has one purpose. It's to remove the things that will not last. It's to remove the things that are only temporary to reveal and to show and demonstrate the things that are immovable. And he says, we must be grateful that we have a kingdom that will not be shaken. That as everything else is shaken away, that we stand in a place before the king and the, the ground around us will not be shaken so that it will fall. We can stand with him before him. So that's the image in the picture there. And if you will think with me for a minute, I have this image in my mind. And I think when the shaking goes on, if you think of a city and the city has all these structures that are in it. And these structures represent kind of power and might and wisdom and glory of the world. It's the best the world has to offer. It's military might, it's wealth, it's fame. It's whatever you want to say. And we look at that and we go, that is wonderful. It's gorgeous. It's magnificent. It's powerful. It's attractive. It's all of those things to our eyes, to the world's eyes. It looks that way. And yet when God shows up, he says, I'm going to shake. And what's going to happen in the, we're going to find that these images, these buildings really are only facades. And when he shows up and they begin shaking, the facades are going to begin to crumble and reveal what's really behind them, what they really are, to show that they really are nothing at all that they are actually weak and not strong, and that the strength that lies behind them is God himself, and that the veneer of this power will collapse to reveal the true power underneath. And so as we think about this passage and we think about what God is doing, he wants us to see, he wants them to see that when he shows up and things start shaking, he's going to reveal the one who's really in charge. That's a day they couldn't wait to see. It's a day we anticipate as well, that when he shows up, everything will be shown to be exactly the way it is. So the two things we want to see as we look at this passage with this kind of as the backdrop as by way of introductions, we think about the temple and God says he wants to encourage them in their building of the temple. Something they needed to see is the profound connection between their work, their effort, their faithful obedience in the work of the temple and God's plan to bring in the nations, that they would connect their work to what God was doing somehow to bring the nations to them. Let's look at the passage, verse, verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. They needed to raise their eyes beyond their work to see there's something that God was doing in the building of His temple that was beyond just their physical work. They needed to grasp, but somehow was connected to their physical work, that their work was in, integral in what God was doing. There was a discouragement that they, fe- they, that they suffered from as a result of the comparison of this temple that they were building and the former temple, the glory of the first and this one, which seems so common in comparison to that. 
And what God wants them to get, a hand, get their hands around, he says, don't just look at what you can do. Don't just look at what you bring to the table. I want you to see what I can accomplish. I want you to see what I'm doing in the midst of your work and beyond your work to build and accomplish what I want. You see, the nations, the Gentiles here, that includes us, have a contribution to make to the building of God's temple. It's not just about them building a temple. God says, no, there's something more that I want you to see the nations are connected to. They didn't have any gold or silver to bring. All they had was the structural elements in the building of the temple. But through God's shaking, he says, I will shake the nations and they will bring in and my house will be filled with glory. There was an aspect of the temple that the nations would contribute something. That God says, it's not just about your contribution. It's what I'm going to do and how the nations, how the Gentiles will have a contribution to be made here. God's plan in the building of his temple would not be complete without the nations and what they would bring. And the imagery here is the nations are brought in as a picture of, of kind of a pilgrimage. As they're coming to it, they're flowing in, they're coming to this place. And it's also a picture of, of the nations being held captive, taken captive, and their spoils of this captivity are brought in. And so the gold and the silver that God says, all oh, the gold is mine, the silver is mine, declares the Lord, is theirs. And they're bringing it to add and to contribute to the building of this temple. And the Lord of hosts, as he conquers the nations and subdues them, as he subdues us, that there's a contribution to be brought in, the treasures of them. And I hope you see the picture for us. It's not just about one people group. It's not just about Israel or even us in America. It's about God saying, I'm doing something beyond just you. Don't look at what you're doing only or what you can accomplish to make sure your eyes are fixed beyond your work to see what I will accomplish throughout all time and space. And it's a picture for them. The passage we read together from Ephesians chapter 2 is a picture of that. When Paul reminds the Gentiles that you're being built into this temple, it's laid on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. But even beyond that, with Christ as the cornerstone, that it's a foundation that's laid, that you will be built into a temple of which God himself will come and dwell within them. The temple that God was building in this case would require more than just the contribution of Israel to get the full, full picture of what God was doing, it would require the precious contribu- contribution of the conquered hearts of those who are his, that we have a contribution to bring. And so God says, I will fill this with glory, and it's going to involve all people groups, all nations, not just Israel. And then in verse 9, it says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. How will the latter, the glory of the, the latter be f- greater than the former? How is it that the case? The former one, we talked last week about the greatness and majesty of it and all the gold and silver that was a part of it. And yet God says this will be greater. It's because God's redemptive purposes will be seen, will be unfolded in this very temple. On one scale, the house that they're going to build, the temple they're going to build, will be added onto by Herod himself in the first century. He's going to come, he's going to add to that. And then who's going to show up about 30 A.D.? Jesus Christ, as he shows up, that he will grace the temple, that the Lord himself, God with us, Emmanuel, will show up and will grace the house, the house that they built. So its glory will be greater in that respect. But even on another plane, on another level, what Christ will accomplish in his life and his death and his body will free them from a need to have a physical space. That as he completes the work that the Father has begun 
that there will be no need to have a physical space, that, that he will build a temple, will be a spiritual reality, not a physical one, so much so that it will be destroyed, the physical one, as the spiritual one is made and the reality is put together with people from all tongues and tribe and people and nation, that Christ himself will build that temple with himself as the cornerstone. Of course, we see the glory will be greater because of it will be ultimately his work and accomplished by his life and death. And what they needed to see is that their obedience was connected to this work, building a temple physically, but beyond that to see beyond what God was doing in their midst, that he was bringing people into and who involved the nations. And the question for us is we're in the midst of our circumstances how is it that our work, our faithful work, our struggling work, our, our apparent failure at times can be a part of God's redemptive plan? It would be a stretch to say that they understood what God was telling them he was going to do. Of course, they didn't get it. But it raised their eyes beyond the work to say, okay, God's doing something more here than what we see. And so we keep working because our eyes aren't going to see exactly what he's doing. But we keep working by faith. The same thing in our own lives as we work, as we trust and we step out in faith and we say, okay, God, what are you doing? There's times we see what he's doing. There's other times we don't. As our eyes are lifted by faith, we say, okay, God is doing something here in the use of our work, our obedience, in the building of his church. How was it that Elizabeth Elliot could return and those others could return to have ministry to these people who killed their husbands? It was because their eyes were fixed on something beyond themselves, a temple that was being built that God was doing, that they could continue there. So as our eyes are, are raised to see what God is doing in the building of his temple, we can continue to work and connect our obedient effort, our work, to what he's doing. So the theme of this temple is important for them. It's important for us because we realize that our work is no longer, is, it's less physical, but it's spiritual, and God uses our effort in the building of his church. Secondly, the Zerubbabel passage I knew there were two sermons that I'm cramming into one here, so I'm really sorry. But this is the, 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 the passage here I want to look at. The, the first theme is the temple. The second one is God's messenger, God's chosen one of Zerubbabel. Verse 20 through 23, see that Haggai comes 24th day to speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strengths of kingdoms and nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, de declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. They needed to see something. They were without a, le a leader. They were without one who was chosen to be the leader for them, who would be God's representative in their midst. And God blesses them by saying, I've chosen this one to be my representative in your midst. For the years of exile, for the years leading up to this point, no one really had God placed his hand upon to give them the kind of authority that's there. And so they needed to see the blessing of the restoration of God's rule and reign through his chosen one. And as they saw that God had chosen one in their midst, that they would be encouraged to keep going, that there was one who was chosen by God to do and complete this work. They could be encouraged to move on. We see that God is the active party in this, and you can read through that, and God acts, he speaks, he overthrows, he destroys, he chooses, he makes, he takes. So God is the one who is active in, in, this, in the midst here. We also see that, that his action is to overthrow 
these rival powers and to put in place his king, to put in place his one who will represent him. And so there's an overthrow of those who stand against him so that he can put in place the one who is in charge. And so you see the language in verse 22, overthrowing thrones of kingdoms, destroying the strengths of kingdoms. You see that what God's doing is these are emblems of power that he's standing against. And this is great encouragement for them as they would hear that he's going to do this. And the presence of this one in their midst who was his chosen one is a picture of the hope of what God's going to do. Just as the temple is a picture of God's presence, so the presence of the one who was chosen by God would be a picture of the hope of God's promise to destroy his enemies and establish his one, his chosen one, in their midst. So he himself would be that that picture and promise of that, just as David would have been to them as he comes in this line of David. And so this is great encouragement to them. And we see that, that these, the promise here is that he will overthrow these kingdoms, that, that if you will, as, as this one is established as king, that the veneer will come off and the emblems of power will be destroyed. All systems, all ideas, all philosophies will be destroyed by him. And as Christ shows up, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And will reveal that he is the king. And so the promise here with the presence of Zerubbabel, with this one of God, is that, that is a promise that God will establish his reign. It will be visible. And the shaking is a picture of that. It's an image of what he's going to do. Philippians 2, as I mentioned earlier, is a promise of what's going to happen with Christ, when Christ shows up on the stage. Every knee will fall. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Will they intend to do or not? I don't know if you saw this. I, I I caught it on a, on a YouTube. There was a baseball game a couple weeks ago. It was the uh, t- uh, Twins and the Twins and the uh, Rangers. Okay, <clears throat> there's a point to this anyway, and not just about baseball, uh, but in the game, in the middle of the game, the, you can see it and watch it replay it over and over. But in the middle of the game, there's this incredible lightning strike, and as, as the lightning strike happens, there's the, of course the clap of thunder is immediately upon them. And in the middle of this baseball game, as this hits, everything stops. And if you watch this thing, it's, it's hilarious. These players immediately stop. The guys at bat head for the dugout. The, the coaches or the refs, the catcher, the batter drops everything. They head to the dugouts. The guys in the field, when the lightning hits, they hit the ground literally. They fall to their face on the ground when lightning hits, when it strikes. When they come into the presence of this kind of power, that's exactly what happens. Everything stops. You run for the hills. You hit the ground. And when God shows up, when he begins to shake in this instantaneous moment, and everything is revealed, that's exactly what happens. More than a lightning strike for these baseball players, everything stops. Everyone bows. All power, all superficial power is thrown away. And we're revealed and we see indeed who is in charge, who indeed is in control. And as Christ shows up as his king, his second time, he brings this reign. We will see it more clearly. And he wants to remind them, he wants to remind us of this kind of rule, this kind of reign that he does bring. But it comes in this messenger, Zerubbabel. That Zerubbabel is a picture of God's restoration of his rule and reign in their midst and the promise that he will bring it and that someday it will come. It's interesting. Verse 23 is the conclusion. It ends right here. And the language is just, it's filled with messianic language of this chosen messenger, this chosen one. 
He says, I will take you as Zerubbabel. I will appoint you. I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. Zerubbabel, an ancestor of David, who falls in the line of David, is chosen here as the one, the signet ring. It's a picture of familiar in, the, in, in, in that period of time and other periods of time as well. There would be an authenticating kind of um, device, a ring or something that was held around the neck that they would use, the king or anyone in authority would use to authenticate a message. And so they would use that seal to mark the envelope or whatever it was, whatever kind of scroll or whatever. The, I guess they wouldn't have envelopes in that day, would they? The scroll that they would send with the message says, you are this authenticating device, that you are like this one to me, that you're a symbol of authority. An ancestor of, of him was Joachim, who, is, who God tells us in Jeremiah 23, we're told that, that he was like a signet ring, but he was cast off. And now we have the reinstitution of God's authority in and under his rule here in the line of David. And the language remind us what God is telling them and what they would have heard undoubtedly if this is God's chosen one, this is in the line of the Messiah. If he's not the Messiah, then he's going to lead us down that road to get to the Messiah. Messiah. Now what's important as we look at Zerubbabel, as we think about this whole line of, of messengers that were sent and servants of the Lord that were sent, is that Zerubbabel was unlike some of the others. If you think about David to the degree that you would have thought of might and power and wealth and notoriety on an international stage for him, Zerubbabel was exactly the opposite. There's no might. There's no power. His name means born in Babylon. The Lord's chosen one has a name that means born in Babylon, one who is in exile, who is taken captive. He hasn't done so well now for 16 years, right? He hasn't done so well in even leading at this point. He's a little, little is known about him. He is an obscure figure. He's the governor of Judah, but... The land had been minimized at the time, and they're still under Persian rule. And just as you would look at the temple and you would scratch your head and say, that's the temple, that's the place where God, the Lord Most High, is going to dwell, so you would look at Zerubbabel and you look at his lineage and history and say, he? He's going to be the one that God's going to choose to lead? He's going to be the representative? He's going to be the hope that God's going to come and make things right and shake all things heaven and earth? And you would say, Hmm, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't add up. We get to our New Testaments, we see that he is in the line of Christ. He is in the line of David. And that they would need eyes not to see the man, but to see the Lord who had chose the man, who would destroy rival powers and install him and put him in place and make him integral to his plan. Two images that we've had. The temple connects their work with what God is doing on a cosmic scale. We see here the messenger, the one that's chosen by God to be his messenger, obscure as he is, to be the hope that God will set things right. We see images in both of these of the gospel that what man couldn't accomplish, God would accomplish through weak and selfish people, through obscure people, through common people, that God would come and make them strong. He would enable them to accomplish what they couldn't have ever imagined, to build a temple to his glory that would house him and ultimately point towards Christ as he would come. And we understand the same, right? That God has come to us. He has conquered us. He has made us a part of his temple. And more than just making us a part of his temple, he has then said, I'm going to use you in a way that you couldn't have even imagined. I want to use you in reaching out to others because it's not just for you. It's for every people, tribe, and tongue, and nation that we get to be a part of building this temple in and through our lives and that we ourselves 
are being made into this dwelling place for him. If you go to Acts 2 at Pentecost, you find little, what looked to be like little flames of fire, tongues of fire on the heads of all the people present there. And you go, what is that about? And you see what God is doing. He's given us a picture of what he's doing now with his temple. Flames of fire, tongues of fire representing his presence, saying it's no longer about a physical space. It's about a spiritual reality that I'm going to come and dwell in my people. So he says, I'm going to come and dwell in them. As they recognize their work was connected with what God was doing, so our work is. As we look to not just to Zerubbabel, but the one that he pointed, we look to Christ, to the messenger, the one who has come. And we look to him and we say, we have hope that God will show up, that Christ will return, his king will rule, and that everything will be turned upside down. And as long as we're standing with him in his kingdom in submission to him, we'll experience that reign and we'll experience a kingdom that will not be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the pictures that we have throughout the Old Testament, these images that help us get our hands on who Christ is, the things that you accomplished that we couldn't have accomplished in and of ourselves, that by your power and your might you have done this, and we see Christ as the fulfillment of all of these things. We pray that you would dwell in us, pray that you would give us to eyes to see what you're building beyond just here in Lawrence, Kansas, too literally the ends of the earth. Father, give us great hope as we look at Christ to see that he is your, not just a signet ring, but he is your presence in and among us, that we would live, bow to him, and find our lives bound up in that submission to him. Father, many needs in our midst, and I pray today, I pray for the Nunkies and ask that you would continue to encourage and provide and care for them and give them strength as they lead the, the ministry as well as lead their, as he leads their family and the rebuilding of their home and their lives there. Father, I think just hearing the message of Shannon Brooks, Marcus's wife, having emergency appendectomy just uh, yesterday, um, pray for them and pray that you would uh, bring healing to her and even the changes in their uh, Jesus film trip that they had planned, that you would, um, uh, you would see fit to, to meet the needs of that as well. Um, Seeing Megan and Paul here this morning, I pray for them and pray for the death of her father, that you'd be with them and, and comfort them today. Pray, Father, you continue to be present in our midst and empower us as your people to go to live in the reality of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand now. And don't forget, uh, in room 17, uh, let's pack it out. And we come back in here is the, the update on the Orient Center. Please take advantage of that. Grab some coffee. Stick around. The, the word to us, the reminder again is that the God will empower us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. All of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. You satisfy me with your love, and all I have in you is more than enough. 
multiply my breath of life still more awesome than I know you are my reward worth living for still more awesome than I know and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough you're my sacrifice of greatest price still more awesome than I know you're my coming king you are everything still more awesome than I know and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and I have in you and all of you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and it's all I have in you is more than enough and it's all I have in you is more than enough and all I have in you is more than enough. You are dismissed.